This is the Down HDM Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining. My name is Jeff Holmes. I am your host for today's episode. We have a really cool talk today on metacognition by Samantha Wood. She is an assistant professor of emergency medicine, Tufts University School of Medicine, and she is triple boarded in emergency medicine, internal medicine, and critical care. This was presented at the 2019 Maine Medical Center Winter Symposium up in Sugarloaf, Maine. She was recognized as the most outstanding speaker of the conference, and she also recently won our resident award. So she is a, a great thought leader in our department, and I hope you enjoy this talk. All right. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I learned as I was preparing this talk about a saying in the computer science world, which is that for every equation that you put in your paper or your talk, you automatically lose 10% of your audience. Right there. And I learned that from my computer programmer husband who told me yesterday that he thought that having the word metacognition in my title was like having an equation in my title. And I better watch out because I was just going to lose everybody right off the bat. So it was too late to change it, but I take it as a challenge to spend about 20 minutes over the course of the morning overcoming the fact that I put the word metacognition in the title and convincing you that knowing a little bit about metacognition will make you a better doctor when you go back to the emergency department. thing to start with is talking about misdiagnosis. Misdiagnosis is shockingly common across all of medicine. When you look at these large-scale studies that look at all fields of medicine, we find that the diagnosis is incorrect about 10 to 15 percent of the time. Even in fields where you would think that things are very clear-cut, very visual fields like pathology, radiology, dermatology, those folks get the diagnosis wrong about 5 percent of the time. So you can imagine when you throw in the idiosyncrasies of the patient, the idiosyncrasies of the physician, the chaos of the environment that we practice in, it's not that surprising that we're not right 10 or 15% of the time. Here's the other thing. In emergency medicine, we are not missing the zebras. This 10 to 15% is not because we're not diagnosing porphyria or SMA syndrome. The most commonly missed diagnoses in autopsy studies of ED patients who die are dissection, PE, and MI. We are missing our bread and butter. If you look closely and dive deeply into the records of these incorrect diagnoses, what you'll find is that it's not really a knowledge problem. When they've gone in and looked very closely at these charts, really tried to dissect where the problem was, it was a knowledge gap only about 13% of the time. The vast majority of the time, the knowledge was there, it was just the reasoning that was not accurate. This next uh, topic brings me back a little bit to what uh, Dave McKenzie said yesterday about everybody thinking that they're a better than average driver. We are also just really terrible at recognizing this in ourselves. When you ask physicians to share cases of incorrect diagnoses and you say, you can share as many cases as you want, you can share your own cases, you can share somebody else's cases, however many you want to tell us about, 30% of them share a case where they were wrong in making the diagnosis. But 67% of them can point to the other guy and say, here's a case where that other person was wrong. So we're not that great at seeing this in our own practice and acknowledging that we are part of this 10 to 15%. Kind of a similar study um, showing that we're maybe a little bit more confident than we should be about our accuracy. This was a really interesting study 
where physicians were given kind of a computer um, interaction with four different hypothetical patients. There were four cases. Two of them were easy, and two of them were difficult. And they kind of walked the physicians through, these physician volunteers through each of these cases. The physicians could give their differential at any time. They could request additional imaging, and then they would come to their final diagnosis. And in the study, for the easy cases, the doctors were right 55% of the time. And for the hard cases, they were right 5% of the time. So they were really hard cases, so maybe that's not that surprising. When they had the physicians give their final diagnosis, they also asked them, how confident are you that you are correct? Now, for the easy cases, the doctor, and they gave, they gave that on a 0 to 10 scale. So for the easy cases, the doctors answered, I am 7 out of 10 certain that I'm correct. So they were a little overconfident because they were only correct 55% of the time. What do you think they answered about the hard cases? How certain were they that they were correct? Also 7 out of 10. So there's a, um, there's a gap between the accuracy of the diagnoses that we make and our confidence that we're right. So that's my call to action. I think that this is our wheelhouse. We are an upfront specialty. We are meeting patients who have never seen uh, somebody for their problem before. They're coming to us with their set of symptoms, and we are a diagnostic center. That is the heart and soul of what we do in emergency medicine. So we need to take these challenges with miscorrect, incorrect diagnoses and ask what can we do as individuals to, to deal with this. There are certainly systems issues that can be done as well. I'm going to leave that aside and talk more about what an individual ED doc can do to improve your accuracy and your likelihood of being correct when that patient comes to your ED. So this brings us to the concept of metacognition. The easier way to think about what metacognition is, is it's just thinking about thinking. It's having a little bit of understanding about how our brains work. And with that understanding, you can be a better diagnostician. Fortunately, this has been a very active area of research, not so much in the medical field, but just in the general psychology literature over the past couple of decades. And we have what we think is a really good understanding of how people think. And it's pretty simple. And it's generally accepted as this is the way that our brains work. And this is called the dual process theory, which also sounds complicated. But it basically means that your brain functions in one of two modes all the time. Your first mode is called type 1 thinking. This is where you spend 95% of your day. This is where you were when you wandered into the elevator and wandered down and chose your breakfast and sat down this morning. It's where you are when you drive your car to work and you get there and you realize that you didn't really have to think at all about how you got there. This is where you are appropriately when you walk into a critical care room and you see VFib on the monitor and you shock the patient. This is where you are when you immediately recognize a STEMI and you call out all the orders that need to be done immediately to get that patient the care that they need. Type 1 thinking is intuitive, it is fast, and it takes very little effort. You don't have to work to do type 1 thinking. Type 1 thinking kind of gets a bad rap because most cognitive errors occur in type 1 thinking. But in defense of type 1 thinking, this is where we have to live and this is where we have to work most of our day or else you'd never get anything done. And also, if you're very accurate in your type 1 thinking and you're good at what you do, this is going to serve you well, such as those kind of emergency examples that I gave to you guys. A, a critically ill patient with an easily intervenable problem is not the time to be doing type 2 thinking, which we'll talk about in a second. 
So type two is the opposite. Type two thinking is deliberate. It is very slow. It takes a lot of effort and focus. This is why when you're driving somewhere and you're trying to follow directions to get where you're going, you turn down the radio or you ask the person next to you. Actually, they usually intuitively sense that you can't handle the cognitive overload and they stop talking to you about whatever it was they were talking about, right? You can only do one thing at a time. This um, type of thinking takes a lot of effort. It's not something you can do when you have a tech on one side handing you an EKG to look at and a nurse on the other side asking you for a diet order and the medical student hovering over here because they want to hear about what you think about this or that. This generally requires quiet and it requires time and it requires hard work. The general thought is that this is more accurate, a more accurate way of thinking and that you're more likely to be correct if you take the time to do type 2 thinking. Probably most important is understanding that we can toggle between these two ways of thinking. When you're in type 1 and you say to yourself, whoa, I am out of my depth, this is really complicated, I need to like get a minute away and think, that's called executive overdrive. You are taking yourself over to type 2 thinking and you're saying, I need to pause, take a break, sit down, and really think about this. The other thing that we all do really well as we progress through our training and our practice is we bring things that used to require type 2 thinking and we bring them over to type 1. Think about maybe the first time as a medical student that you saw a patient with hand, foot, and mouth disease and you looked at this rash and you looked in their mouth and you heard their story and you got really nervous and you went to the computer and you looked up a whole big differential and you thought about it for an hour and then you went and told your attending what you thought was going on, right? And now you guys, everybody out here can walk into a room, see that pattern and say, this is hand, foot, and mouth disease, right? You brought your type 2 problem over to a type 1 uh, skill. Thanks, Sam. That was a great introduction to metacognition. Let's just recap some of the, the main points in, in your talk there. So why are we talking about metacognition? Well, physicians make the wrong diagnosis a scary amount of the time. What's even more scary is they don't recognize that all the time. So we really need to, to think about the thought process about how we come up with our ultimate diagnosis and see if we can use that knowledge to improve our accuracy. As you can imagine, in emergency medicine, we're even more challenged to come up with a correct diagnosis because there's just so many things against us. We have patients with limited historical ability, whether they are elderly with some cognitive delay, under the influence of a recreational drug or alcohol, have a head injury, you name it. And I think our medical records are also somewhat fragmented and limited. I think the information that we have is incomplete. Some of the handoffs we get from sending hospitals and other sending facilities are, are incomplete. So we really need to kind of take a closer look at this. And Sam introduced the idea of dual process theory, and that's the area of psychology that, that really says we, we do, sorry, we spend the majority of our time in either type one or type two thinking. Type one thinking, again, is that fast, easy type of thinking. It's the pattern recognition. It's, it's what we spend the majority of our time in for our shifts. And, and that's a good thing because you can imagine if we spent the majority of our time in type two thinking, it would just be too mentally exhausting to be able to have to do in-depth thinking about the majority of patients. Experienced providers, they have a gestalt, they have the ability to thin slice, and that is what's really helpful and accurate the majority of time with type one thinking. With type two thinking, this is that type of thinking that's a little bit slower, there's a little bit more effort that's involved because we're, we're switching gears and we're not just doing quick pattern recognition, but 
We're using all the data in front of us. We're getting some consultants. We're really chewing on this. And this is usually very accurate, but again, takes a lot of effort. And so for me, what I find the most challenging thing is, is not understanding the difference between the two and being able to appreciate the two. It's knowing when to switch from type one thinking into type two thinking. And in this next section, Sam is going to help us with some metacognition tips and tricks you can use on your next shift. To be perfectly honest, a lot of this is stuff that you guys are all doing anyway, but I think there's some value to putting a name to it, again, so we can communicate with each other and also to make it all a little bit more deliberate. And I do think that this will help practice in the emergency department. And this one thing we can do it as individuals to try to combat that misdiagnosis epidemic that we're dealing with. So my first tip is pretty obvious. This is just that practice makes you better at what you do. And everybody knows that practice makes you better at what you do. But one of the ways in which it makes you better at what you do is it takes things, those things that used to require your type two cognition and moves them over into type one, just like we kind of mentioned before in the first half of the talk. So for the residents who are here who are in training, every additional patient that you can see with the support of your attendings who've seen it all, all those times before, that's going to be one more example that brings that type of case from your type two cognition over to type one, where next time you'll just recognize it and you'll be really expert at it. For myself, for those of us who are out in practice, the way that I try to make this happen is by really diligent and deliberate follow-up on my patients. So the more, for me, the more that I can follow up on the patients that I admit and the patients that I discharge and find out what their, di their end diagnosis was, was I correct with my first impression? That's how I try to bring, continue to bring things that used to be type two thinking over to type one for myself. The second tip is to flip the switch. So this just means we're, you know, you're at your shift, you're chugging along in type one thinking, you've had a couple of like fairly routine patients. This refers to the ability to recognize when you're out of your depth and you need to pause and say, I really need to go into type two thinking about this patient. Now that's actually fairly easy when you see a patient and you're like, whoa, I don't know what's going on. I need to take some time to think about this. What's harder to do is when you see that patient that you think is routine and your brain thinks it's routine and your brain wants to stay in type one because that's easier and it's what you always do. And to recognize that in that patient, there might be a, a minefield waiting for you and an error in your diagnosis and to shift yourself all the way over to type two in that patient that you perceive as being fairly straightforward. So there's a couple more specific ways to kind of remind yourself to flip the switch over to type two, at least briefly for each patient that you see. One of them is taking a diagnostic pause. I think this comes pretty naturally in academic medicine because when the resident comes and presents a case to you, there's always that moment when you're kind of talking about what's the differential diagnosis. And my residents who are here in the room will know that one of my pet peeves is when we move on to a plan, but we don't define what our differential is. So I think it comes fairly easily when you're working with somebody else, you're hearing a case presentation, and then there's that kind of natural time where you're like, well, what do we think is going on with the patient? I find it a lot harder to do when I'm seeing patients on my own, and the best way that I have found for myself to really enforce a diagnostic pause is to sit down and write some MDM in the patient's medical record right after I see them and then timestamp it and say, you know, a summary of what the patient has presented with, what I think might be going on, here's my next steps. And that does two things. That forces me to take a diagnostic pause. It forces me to consider what else could be going on. And it also cognitively offloads that workup. I no longer have to maintain that plan in my working memory. I put it down in the chart. So it takes it off my mind and kind of frees me up to move on to the next thing. 
my slides didn't project very well. Um, cognitive forcing. It's supposed to say cognitive forcing up there. Uh, cognitive forcing, again, this is something that you all do all the time in the emergency department. You just might not realize that this is what it's called. Cognitive forcing is those tips and tricks where you say to yourself, whenever I see a patient with X, I think about Y. Whenever I see a patient with low back pain, I go through the red flag symptoms. Whenever I see a patient that I'm going to diagnose with renal colic, I think about ruptured AAA. So cognitive forcing are those automatic worst first uh, considerations that you give for yourself, these rules that you give yourself whenever you're seeing a patient with a certain complaint. And the more you can generate these cognitive forcing tricks for more and more patient presentations, the better you're going to be at missing those really challenging or difficult diagnosis. After a personal experience a few years ago with a patient where I missed a pericardial effusion in a patient who was short of breath, whenever I see a patient who's short of breath with clear lungs, I ask, could it be a pericardial effusion? Manage the cognitive load. This is a lot easier to say than to do because we have so little control over our workflow on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's easier, easy for me to stand here in kind of a comfortable room and say, yeah, when you're feeling cognitively overloaded, you should unload it a little bit. But that's honestly, as you guys know, that's not always possible. I think uh, what's most helpful about trying to manage the cognitive load is recognizing when you are in trouble. And I hope that I'm not the only one in the room who knows that feeling where you feel like you can't even focus or concentrate anymore because so much is going on in your mind. And when that happens, if it's at all possible, the best way to combat that is to try to unload some of those cognitive burdens you're carrying. Do, do some patients have results back and you can make a disposition? Are there patients where you're not gonna make the diagnosis in the ED and they just have to be admitted to the hospital? I know that displeases our hospitalist colleagues, but in some cases, you're not gonna be able to do everything that needs to be done, but you know that patient needs to come in. So when you're in that really like, whoa, I'm in trouble setting, just look at what you can do to offload your cognitive burden. Sometimes this requires sneaking away to a hidden location to just get a moment to yourself and think through, look at your list, and decide what you're going to do next. Beware bias. Uh, talking about bias, that's probably the thing that people are most familiar with when it comes to metacognition concepts. There, at this point, have been like hundreds of different kinds of biases that people have come up with. I think it's probably people trying to come up with new ones to get their paper in or make their own, you know, make their name. But there's not that many that are really that critical to us in the ED. And here's a few of them that are, I think, most important for us. The first is effective bias. This is where you don't like the patient or the patient doesn't like you, or the parents don't like you, or you don't like them, or there's something emotional going on regarding how you feel about that patient. And often you, you can pick this up already when you read the triage complaint and you get kind of this visceral, they call it visceral arousal, where you're like, ugh. And then you kind of look around and you're like, maybe somebody else will pick that patient up. I don't really want to go see them. So that's where you have to take a pause and say, this is effective bias. This has to... I have to be aware of this to make sure that I don't treat this patient any differently than anybody else. Probably the most common that we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Framing bias. I am certain I'm not the only person who's taking care of that mechanical uh, level four back pain patient in, uh, in the fast track area who turned out to have an aortic dissection, right? Patients will be triaged to certain locations and geography should not be destiny for us. So beware the framing bias. Just because that patient's in fast track, it doesn't mean they're not sick. You guys know that very well. 
Availability bias, this is when you've been seeing the same thing over and over. So think about flu season. The last 30 patients you've seen with fever and shortness of breath have the flu. So this patient with fever and shortness of breath also has the flu, and you don't even think about myocarditis or pneumonia or whatever else it may be. And then finally, anchoring bias. Probably a greatest risk at sign-out time when your colleague tells you this patient has X, Y, and Z, and this is their diagnosis. And it's very easy to stick to that diagnosis, even if information becomes available that counteracts it. That's really the key of anchoring bias, that new information might come out that goes against that diagnosis, but yet you hang tight to that diagnosis that's been made because it's the easy thing to do. So beware bias. I saved my favorite for the end. So this is my one of my favorite uh, tips for avoiding misdiagnosis and improving your ability to think in the ED. Defend against depletion. We get worse at thinking about patients and we get worse at making the right diagnosis when we are tired, when we are hungry, when we're thirsty, when we have to pee, when there's a million people standing there asking you to do something, which is just every minute of every day in the emergency department, right? So one study, one de details of one study that I want to share with you regarding this. Um, this was a, an interesting study, not on physicians, but on volunteers who were brought into to do the study. And they were given basically this like hour of very difficult cognitive work. And they had to do a task that was absorbing, challenging, type two thinking the whole time. They had to just mentally work really hard to do this hour of this task. Then they were given a break, and during the break, they were served lemonade. Half the group got lemonade with real sugar in it, and half the group got lemonade with a sugar substitute with no glucose in it. Then they took the people back, and they did the Stroop test, which you guys might remember hearing about in medical school. That's this test where you have to name the color of the word, not the actual word, right? So your type one thinking wants to just read the word. So you'd go yellow, yellow, green, blue, right? You have to use executive override and engage type two thinking to name the color of the text. Blue, red, blue, red, yellow. It's really hard to do, right? I can't, I've, I've done this, I've practiced this like five times, I still can't do it. So, so they asked them to do the Stroop test. So what they're asking these people to do is name the color of the text, which requires that executive override, requires type two thinking. And how many more mistakes do you think the people made who didn't get any glucose? They made three times as many mistakes on this test. The people who got a little glucose charge to their brain did three times better. So we've heard a lot lately about feed yourself, rest yourself, make time to pee in terms of physician wellness. One of my most important arguments to you today is that it's not just about physician wellness. This is better for your patients. And if you find yourself in that space, headspace, where you're overwhelmed, you can't think, you're feeling like there's too much going on, that is not the time to double down and work harder. It's the time to take five minutes, eat something, get something to drink, take a pause, because you're going to do better when you come back to your work. So I hope this has been a little bit of a look into the concept of metacognition, maybe makes it sound a little less intimidating and scary, and hopefully a few tips uh, that you guys can use on your next shift. Thanks. Wow, that was awesome, Sam. Let, let's go through some of those metacognition hacks and do a quick ultra summary. So number one, she talked about practicing. So early in our training, we're, we're more likely to be confident, but less likely to be right. So what we need to do is, is start to accumulate those exemplars of uh, clinical diagnosis where we can improve our type one thinking. So 
really lean on your attending and your peers to confirm your impression and your type one thinking. And then that will build that clinical gestalt, the strength of your clinical gestalt for the future. The second one was flipping the switch. And this is deliberately toggling from type one to type two thinking in tough cases. And, you know, it probably is fairly easy to recognize when you're overwhelmed, the pattern doesn't match, and you can switch from type one to type two. But I think as Sam really astutely recognized, it's the times we use type one thinking and we didn't switch to type two thinking that is really perilous. So it's hard, but really try and focus and see if that type one thinking is really the appropriate pattern to use on that patient's diagnosis. The third one is taking a diagnostic pause. So this is taking a moment to let your cognition work. So what Sam describes is immediately after she sees a patient and performs a history and physical, she'll go to the computer and do a quick MDM. And, and this really helps her to cognitively unload the workup so she doesn't have to carry that around in her head. It's, it's in the chart. She can refer to it later. And it also really helps to essentially force her to think about her medical decision-making as opposed to just reflexively order tasks based on the patient's chief complaint. The fourth one is cognitive forcing. And, and I really like this because I think this is where you can actually use your medical records and your electronic health records in your advantage. So what this does is basically use the concept of, of forcing where it's sort of a biz buzz. If you see X, then Y. And a couple examples she gave were, she gave were a patient is presenting with flank pain. Experienced clinicians will always think that could possibly be a AAA when you have a patient who presents with back pain. People, uh, experienced clinicians will have a list of serious, treatable, and common diagnosis that they reflexively think of. So I think this is where the, the medical record and your electronic health records can really come into play. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Gareth DeBegan, will actually have essentially a checklist in his MDM for patient's chief complaint. And what, what's, what's nice is it forces you to go through those differential diagnosis and in a sense kind of do a quick check and see if you need to switch into that type 2 thinking and expand your thought process on that patient. The fifth one is managing the cognitive load. So obviously in emergency medicine, it can get extremely chaotic, but it's important for us to recognize when things have gone so bananas that it's really affecting our decision-making. And one of the greatest uh, pieces of advice I got from one of my mentors in residency, Dr. Mel Otten, was that if you have more than six patients disposition in limbo, you need to start to figure that out and dispose some patients, or you're just going to kind of get stuck and spin your wheels. Get those patients admitted. Perhaps it's premature without a full workup, but you can apologize to the internal medicine physician later. Get that patient dispositioned early. Do they really need those extra tests? I think once you find you're able to cognitively offload the volume of patients that are on your mind, you're going to be able to kick those gears back into, into play with type 1 and type 2 thinking. The sixth one, she reviews some nice uh, common uh, cognitive biases. And the first one is effective. So that is effective bias. Something about the interaction with the patient, with the patient's family is avoiding, is affecting your reasoning. So you really want to be careful about just letting 
your thoughts and reactions to the patient's personality get in the way of your decision-making. And I think a classic example is that patient who perhaps is a frequent flyer that perhaps will use the alcohol or is under the influence of alcohol. It's, it's very quick for us to, to want to assume that it's merely intoxication causing their altered mental status where we really could miss a more serious diagnosis like a, a head injury. Framing is the second bias she covered, and that's the idea of the patient's geography does not dictate the severity of their illness. And the classic example is fast track. Just because your patient is put in fast track, don't believe that they will not be admitted potentially to the ICU later on. These are one of those areas where we really in type, it, uh, incorporate type 1 thinking a lot, but this is where we can get into trouble. Don't let geography dictate the potential severity of your patient. The third one is called availability bias. And this is the idea that your recent experience and perhaps that time period of patients coming in can sway you towards a particular diagnosis. And the classic one is the flu. So in the, in the, the winter, obviously, we see a lot of flu in the emergency department, cough, cold, fever. But it's very easy after all of that flu fatigue to easily diagnose someone with that. So just be aware that it, it's very easy to quickly diagnose someone with the flu where, say, if it's that IV drug user with a fever, it certainly could be more than that. The last metacognition hack that Sam talked about is defending against depletion. And these are just basic things that we forget to do during a shift. This is taking care of yourself so you can take care of your patients. This is hydrating yourself, getting adequate nutrition. And this is probably one of my favorite tips because as my residents and colleagues can, can attest, I love to have lots of little snacks in my lunch bag during the shift. I think they just, the variety gives me some, some boost during the shift and especially that piece of dark chocolate at the bottom of my lunch bag that I'd forgotten I had packed. Boy, I love it when I find that. Thanks, Sam, for a great talk on metacognition and uh, some great practical tips about how we can use this knowledge to our benefit during our shift. Please let us know what you think about this topic. It's, uh, I think, a really an important topic for us to, to cover. You can find us on www.downeastem.org. Feel free to comment on Facebook and Twitter. And thanks for listening.